I'd like for you to turn in the scripture to John 15. I want to begin reading at verse 7. The 15th chapter of John. And I'll read in just a moment, beginning at verse 7. The verses that go through verse 17. Right now I'd like for you to meet me at a little stucco, white stucco house just out on the outskirts of the old city of Jerusalem. And we'll go together up a stairwell to an upstairs room. It's just a small room, kind of compact. There's no furniture in it except one long table and some Roman couches more for reclining as they ate rather than sitting. You could cut the solemnity of that that room with a knife. There's nobody talking, just a couple of men whispering a little bit down at the end of the table. But all eyes are on the man sitting in the center, Jesus. And so when he kind of moves and starts to raise himself a little, there's a total, there is total silence. And he stretches out his arms like this, one hand on the shoulder of the man to his left and one hand on the shoulder of the man to his right. And in the most compassionate and gentle voice, he speaks, I love you guys. You're my friends. I want you to look at the narrative. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no more one than this that one lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father. I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Let's not forget where we are. We're in the upper room. It's probably one of the most sacred places in all of Scripture. And in these words of Jesus that begin in chapter 13 and go all the way through chapter 17, you have the longest word-by-word narrative of the words of Jesus in the Bible. 
And he's telling them the last things that he wants to tell them. And there is something terribly instructive and intimate in the last words that a man says to his loved ones. I have been there. I remember not too long ago in a West Texas hospital room, the doctors had just left having told the family that the prognosis was that their loved one would soon slip into a coma, that these indeed were the, indeed were the last moments. And as I was standing there, that man began to talk. He wanted to talk. He wanted to tell his sons a few last things. And I felt like an intruder, so I got up to leave, and they insisted that I stay. He called one son to the side of his bed, and he talked to him about some things he wanted of him. And another son and a daughter, then he reached out his hand to his wife. She took his hand, and they... She stood there looking at him, and for a long time they said not a word, just looked deeply into each other's eyes. And finally he spoke and said some things about how much he loved her and appreciated her as his companion and wife, and how he wanted her to do a few things in the last year she lived. And then she leaned her head down on his face, against his face, and they wept for moments. It's one of the most intimate places I have ever been. I want you to catch the solemnity and the intimacy of this moment with our Lord as He gathers His disciples around Him and He's going to share with them these last things. And there are three important facts that emerge from this text. And I'll point them out, they're very simple, but I want to point them out emphatically so you won't miss them. I exhort you first to see yourself as a friend of God. To see yourself as God's friend of all the things that Jesus could have called His disciples. He called them friends. And He wants to make it clear that the height and depth of the relationship He desires for all of us is the relationship of friendship. I don't call you servants anymore, He said. Now to be called a servant of God was a supreme privilege. Men who have walked with God have cherished the title of servant of God. It is with joy and gratitude, Paul said, we're called the doulos, the slave of God. And what he is saying is this, that we were once slaves to sin under a terrible bondage. And one day the Lord came along and said, I'll make you my slave. And with joy and gratitude, he said, we are called slaves of God. The last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy is devoted to the wrapping up of the life of Moses, summing up his life. How would you do that? What would you say about such a man if you had to preach his funeral or to write his eulogy? This great emancipator, this reconstructor of Israel's freedom, this lawgiver, what would you say about Moses when he summed up his life in the last chapter of Deuteronomy? It just says three words about him. Servant of God. It was, what was, it was what Joshua was called. 
It was what the prophets were called. It was Paul's pet word he used for himself, the doulos, the servant of God, no higher privilege than that. But if that's all you understand about God, and if that's all you understand about your relationship, all you know is something hard and strict and stringent and demanding and a, a, a discipline that requires obedience. And our relationship is much, much, much more than that. Friends we are of God. And he said the reason why you know this is because the slave doesn't know what his master's thinking. And I've laid bare my heart to you. I've told you everything that I understand about the Father. All I've heard about God, I've shared with you. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, A friend is someone with whom we can be sincere and before whom you can think out loud. And, and, and in what he's talking about is unedited communication. And that's the difference between slavery and friendship. Unedited communication. God laying bare His heart in Jesus' words. Jesus telling us that we're His friend. I could take you this morning to a passage of Scripture in the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus. And that Scripture's context says that whenever they wanted to meet with God, they'd go out to a tent called the Tent of Meeting. It said that whenever Moses went out there, the people stood in the door of their tent and watched until the Shekinah came down at the door of the tent of meeting. And there it said that while the people worshipped the sight of God approaching the tent of meeting, God spoke to Moses face to face as friend. Ask Abraham what it mean, means to be friend of God. And he says... And he'd say it means that I could stand and argue with God concerning his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Ask Elijah what it means to be a friend of God out there in the desert burnt out and sorry that he'd ever been a part of it all. And God comes to him in the moment as a friend bringing food and water and a pillow on which to lay his head. God comes to him as a friend. I had a lady in my church, sweet little lady in a church one time, who every time she introduced me would say, I want to introduce to you, not my pastor, she said, I want to introduce to you, my friend. I want you to understand this morning that that's the way God feels about you. I exhort you to see yourself as a friend of God. Secondly, I want you to know God as a friend. Two men were traveling across the country on a train. One of them was working a crossword puzzle. And he, he got down and he docked one word. And he said to his friend, he said, I like one word. I can't get it. It's a three-letter word for man's best friend. The guy said, well, that's silly. That's simple. He said, man's best friend is dog, D-O-G. And the guy said, no, it won't work. The first letter begins with G. And the last letter begins with D. And the man thought a moment and he said, well, it has to be God. I don't think we see him like that. I think we feel that this God, whoever he is or wherever he is, 
If He comes crowding in upon our life, He's going to narrow the range of our living. He's going to curb our pleasures. In short, He's going to cramp our style. And we've given the impression that God is like that because we've pictured Him as the reigning power, this monarch. And the picture we've developed in our mind is that God wants to dwarf and dominate us and reduce us, that He's jealous of our abilities and our talents. God as a friend, never. But that's the major message of the Incarnation. The Bible could not, the Word could not disclose Him adequately, completely. The written Word could not disclose what God was really like completely. And so Christ showed up. And what He came to do was to show us what God was like. He came to tell us that He was God. Now it was difficult for these disciples to grasp that at first. How difficult would it be for a Jew to believe that this man who walked with them was God? For they had been taught at least two fundamental things about God. One was that God is invisible. He is spirit. No man had ever seen God at any time. And the second thing they taught about God was not only that He was invisible, but that He was indivisible. He was one. And here was Jesus talking about He and the Father. He and the Father were one, etc. How could God who was indivisible, the one monotheistic religion of the world was Judaism, how could but it came upon them like a light. This man is God. Now I want you to file that away. And I want you to go back with me to the upper room, to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, to that passage we often quote at funerals, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, 14th chapter. And what was happening? Now watch, that. watch this. What was going on there was Jesus was helping His disciples deal with their fears. The fear of coping with death, His. The fear of coping with life, theirs, without Him. Without Him, without Him, that's what's going on in that upper room. They're dealing with His death and with their life without Him. And you're not going to get the point or the pain until you understand what this man meant to them and what his relationship was to them and how their lives were woven together. In order to help you do that, I want to give you some recognizable illustrations. I heard this preacher tell one time that he got a call from a guy who said, I've got a buddy who manages the, the, the Civic Center downtown. It's a large city. And he said, there's a concert going on down here Friday night. And said, he, he's offered me four tickets. He said, my wife can't go. And so he said, Would you, why don't you take your daughter, and he had a middle, middle-aged, middle school daughter, teenage daughter, he said, why don't you take your daughter and I'll take mine and we'll go to the concert. He said, well, who's, who's playing? Who's singing? He said, well, I don't, some rock star by the name of Elton John or something like that. He said, I've never heard of him. He said, I asked my daughter a day or two later, you want to go to a concert Friday night? I got tickets on the seventh row, not front row, but seventh row. And she said, well, who is it? She, he said, I don't know, John, somebody. He said, we didn't have the slightest idea who we were going to hear. But he said, when we got to the Coliseum, he said, I've never seen anything like it. He said, it was just a sea of humanity there waiting to get in. 
He said, when we got inside, he said, I couldn't believe it. He said, my daughter and his daughter were just literally freaking out, you know, over this guy out there singing. And he said, I looked around. He said, I saw old women. I saw middle-aged women. He said, I saw teenagers. And they were all doing the same thing as just freaking out over this guy out there singing, just going bananas. And he said, right then, it just really came home to me that there are some whose presence creates an exhilaration and an excitement. Dawson Trotman said that he spent an hour one day with G. Campbell Morgan under the shade of a tree in Winona Lake. G. Campbell Morgan is the great expositor, the preacher at Westminster Chapel. He said, I spent an hour with him under this tree in Winona Lake, and when the hour was over, G. Campbell Morgan got up and left, and he said, I remember getting on my knees and praying this prayer. Lord, if I've never become a Christian, I want to be a Christian right now. Because the presence of that man brought excitement and exhilaration to him. When I was a freshman in high school, my father had a massive heart attack. He was sitting in church. The church had the same kind of arrangement as this. He was sitting right over there about where John Pro is sitting. And he had a heart attack. And they came with the ambulance, and, and of course the service was interrupted, and they carried him to the hospital. I remember that afternoon as I was doing the chores out on the farm, I remember this thought coming to my mind. I don't think I can go on in life if Daddy dies. I don't believe I can make it if he dies. For I was dealing with his death and my life without him. See. Now I want you to go back into that upper room because that's what's going on there, here with these men. They'd been in the presence of the most exhilarating man, the most exciting man they'd ever met. They saw him heal the blind and the lame, give hearing to the deaf. They heard him preach as nobody that ever heard saw his life and he had generated such exhilaration and such excitement and now he was telling them that he was going to leave. And he said, now I know these words you will not be able to really handle. You don't know how you're going to go on. He understood the relationship that he had with them and there was this dynamic in that room that morning, that, that, that day, that night, as they understood that this wonderful man that they loved was going to leave them and they couldn't think of life without him. Now I want you to put two and two together. I want you to remember that they'd already discovered that this man was God. And now they're, they're dealing with the fact that he's the most wonderful person they'd ever met and the greatest friend they had ever known. And so when they put two and two together, it dawned on them that God could be known as a friend. Now let me tell you something. I don't sense too much excitement in you about that, but let me tell you what. That was exciting to them. For all they had known about God was this holy other, this reigning monarch, this God who lived somewhere in the third heaven. And all of a sudden they had come to see that this God could be known and loved as a friend. And I want to take that beyond that. And I want you to know that you can have the same kind of relationship. 
because I've got my finger on the seventh verse of the next chapter and Jesus is saying, it is better for you that I go away because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit can come and every person everywhere at any time can know me just like you know me. Did you get that? That the same kind of in relationship of these that these disciples had with Jesus as their friend, with God as their friend, is available to you and to me. I'll tell you, or you listen carefully, this world is more filled with His presence now than it was then. Henry Drummond used to say, what if Jesus were alive today in Israel? Every train that took off in the Middle East would be headed to Jerusalem with passengers to see Jesus. And every plane would be booked to capacity with pilgrims going to Jerusalem to see Jesus. And if you and I docked, he said, in a boat in the harbors of Israel, there'd be ships flying every, from every nation, flags from every nation. And if we started our trek toward Jerusalem to see Jesus, there would be this mass wave of humanity stretching out before us to the spire, to the spheres, the spheres of, 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 the, of the holy city. And we'd be going to see Jesus, but we probably would never get close enough to see Him. But He is here. And you can know Him just like these disciples knew Him as a friend. And Jesus said, He that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying, I don't have favorites, but I do have intimates. I want to be his intimate. I don't have favorites, but I do have intimates. Margaret Clarkson has written several hymns, but she's most noted for the work she does with, with singles. Let me, write, let me read you a letter, that, uh, a, 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 an article she wrote. Listen carefully. It says, The companionship of Jesus Christ is no myth. He's the first person I speak to in the morning and the last one at night. Many days he's the only one with whom I may talk all day long. I try not to have too many days of such isolation, but sometimes they're inevitable. These hours, however, are usually very happy. We don't talk only of spiritual things, and he and I, although that is a part of each day's fellowship, we keep up a running fellowship all day long. Whatever I may be doing, I'm constantly needing his help. With this undertaking or that habit or this attitude, he's always available. He helps me with such particulars as reminding me that I left the iron on or that I should run an errand or make a phone call or by jogging my memory of where I set something down like my glasses. Together we enjoy the beautiful things with which he has filled my life. Fine music, the soft feel of a furry body, the soft amber evening sky, the friendliness of a crackling fire on an autumn night. My heart is constantly reaching up to Him in praise and gratitude, and He fills it with Himself. This relationship that I have with Jesus didn't come easy. I have hours of loneliness, but in so much as I give myself to Him, He gives Himself to me. I don't know all the answers of human loneliness, but I do know one 
the daily, hourly, moment-by-moment practice of the presence of Jesus Christ. That's intimacy with the Lord. And I want that, don't you? She's not his favorite, but she's his intimate. One last thought, please. We need to make friends. Stanford, Texas, the First Baptist Church in Stanford, Texas was in a terrible turmoil. There was bickering and dissension. They were in a building program and everybody was unhappy with everybody and everybody was mad at the preacher. One night he couldn't sleep and he got up late at night. My, my sister-in-law is a member of that church. This is an absolute horrible but true story. He got up one night late, went down to his church. They were working on the baptistry and they had some scaffolding in there. He, t- he got up in the baptistry, got on a, got on a uh, platform, threw a rope over a, an exposed beam and hung himself to death. And everybody was wanting to know, everybody was asking, why would somebody do that? And somebody said, well, that goes against everything that a preacher would preach, would do something like that. That's not the question I ask. The question I asked was this. I wonder if that man had a friend. Someone with whom he could be absolutely sincere and before whom he could think out loud. And sometimes I hear about a husband who goes in and tells his wife, I don't love you anymore, never did. Or some wife who says to her husband, I'm leaving, I don't love you anymore. My question is, were they ever friends? And every week I talk to somebody whose lives are wrenched because they have no friends. Whose lives are wrenched because their parents didn't see them as a friend. Moss Hart, who writes for the New York Times, wrote a little piece at Christmas time. He said his daddy got him and they were poor, lived on the east side of, of, of New York City. And they went down to do some Christmas shopping. He said, I didn't know it then, but my daddy just had 75 cents to buy me a present. He said, we'd come to these shopping carts and I'd say, Daddy, look at that chemistry set. Look at that stamp collection. Wanting my dad to get me one of those. And he said, we just go by to the next, to the next, not knowing that Daddy didn't have enough money to get that. And he said, as we stopped one time, he said, I, all of a sudden, he said, it dawned on me, Daddy doesn't have enough money to get me a nice present. And he said, I looked up at my Daddy and I saw this terrible sadness. He said, I wanted to put my arms around him and say, it's all right, Daddy. I don't have to have a chemistry set. This is just fine. But he said, we didn't have that kind of relationship. And he said, one by one, we eliminated the shops, the carts, and headed home without anything. He said, I wanted to take my daddy's hand. He said, just for a moment, that concrete wall that divided me from my father had come tumbling down. But he said, I wanted to reach up and take my daddy's hand. And I knew he wanted to take mine, but we didn't have that kind of relationship. Do you? I ask you, are you you a friend of your wife? Are you a friend of your husband? Somebody decided they was going to count how many hours a man talks to his wife in a week. 
I mean, even to the point of past the toast, all of that was kept. There are 168 hours in a week. I think that's 10,080 minutes. You know how long the average wife and husband talked in the week? 17 minutes. Is he your friend? Is she your friend? Does it make any difference? Are you, are you hearing this? Does it make any difference to you that there are people who feel they don't have a friend? One. That's what this church is about. Ray Stedman put it like this. He said, The divine strategy with which the Lord intends to bring the world to an awareness of Jesus Christ is to create in the midst of the world a family, a family life, a love-shared life, so that men and women all over the earth, becoming by the new birth members of that family, enter into a family circle that is so unmistakable and so filled with joy and warmth and love that worldlings observing it will envy it. And like homeless orphans with their noses pressed against the window will long to join the warmth and fellowship of that family circle. Then he said, when the church is like this, there is no more potent evangelical force. That's what this church is about. We'd better start making friends with one another. Are we going to start a revival crusade and talk about winning people to the Lord? If a man comes here, does he sense that he belongs to a family of love? Do you have a friend? Do you care that there are people who don't think they have a friend? You know what this church is to be? Not the richest church, not the biggest church, not the goingest church, but the lovingest church. Now I'll close with this. When I started out preaching, I thought that the way you got, you know, the successful revivals were getting people to make decisions. So we have these, you know, there are these techniques to get people to respond. They're, they're a sham. I'm ashamed that I've even been a part of it. But if you didn't, you know, not getting things going on in revivals like, you, th- you know, one technique is to, you know, have everybody in the invitation to go to somebody and tell them how much they appreciate them. So you get everybody moving around, you know, and everybody's hugging on one another and crying. And one night I did that. While everybody was milling around, moving around, I looked back and there was a guy sitting right in the back in the center section. Not a single soul coming to him. You're just standing there all alone. They were coming to his wife and they were hugging her and they were going everywhere else. He's just standing there. Two things I did that night. I decided I'd never do that again as long as I live, and I haven't. The second thing I decided I, I should have done, I didn't. I should have gone back to that man, took him by the hand, looked him in the eye, and said, I'd like to be your friend. We need to make friends. In 1967, Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers became roommates. Gail Sayers was a black man, hadn't been around too many white folks. Brian Piccolo was from the South. He'd never been around black people. And they became roommates playing football for the Chicago Bears. In 1969, Brian Piccolo was struck down with cancer. 
So when Gail Sayers would be off with the team and play a game, as soon as the game was over, he'd hit a pl- catch a plane and fly to where Brian Piccolo was. They were close friends. In the spring of 1969, 69, they were going to have a, a sports writers, professional sports writers banquet in Chicago honoring the most courageous athlete to play professional football, the George Hallis Courageous Athlete Award. Gail Sayers was going to get it. And he and, the, and Brian Piccolo's family, they planned to sit together. But Brian Piccolo was in the hospital. Gail Sayers got up to receive his award and said, I want you to know that you flatter me by giving me this award. But I want to accept this award for Brian Piccolo. He is a courageous man. And then with tears streaming down his face, this black man said, I love Brian Piccolo. I want you to love Brian Piccolo. And then in choked emotion, hardly able to speak, he said, I want you to ask God to love Brian Piccolo. Does it matter to you that there are people who don't feel like anybody loves them? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will help us to fall in love with one another and with you. And to hear again the words of Jesus, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Help us, Lord, to see the hurting of people and really care. And then we'll be the church. Because I pray in Jesus' name, for his sake. In a moment, we're going to have a prayer, an invitation. And our invitation is this, that we invite you to come. You can know God as a friend. To come and receive Christ as your personal Savior. To come and join a fellowship of believers. Come to help us fall in love with the world. Come this morning and rededication of your life. As God leads you to make your decision, we'll be praying for you while we stand to sing.